I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore innovative thinking and thought leadership through interviews, commentary, and conversation with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Baseball Commissioner Emeritus Bud Selig, author of the new book, For the Good of the Game, the inside story of the surprising and dramatic transformation of Major League Baseball, which came out July 9, 2019, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on July 18th. Enjoy. So anyway, uh, I'm Talmadge Boston, and on, uh, on behalf of the Shackelford Law Firm, where I'm honored to be a partner, and the SMU Cox School of Business, the great Kevin Knox is here back there. Kevin, our great friend. And Comerica Bank, the great Scooter Smith, where is Scooter right here? And the uh, Trammell and Margaret Crow Foundation. We are your four co-sponsors and uh, delighted to be here. Uh, for those of you who have uh, seen the musical Hamilton, you remember one of the most famous songs is the room where it happens. Well, this is the room where it happens. To have the former commissioner of baseball here in this elegant room, historic room, uh, for a lively conversation, Commissioner Selig, step right up, uh, is, is really going to be a very exciting time for all of us. So let me uh, introduce Commissioner Selig, a man who needs no introduction. But believe it or not, uh, even though he looks like he's my age, Commissioner Bud Selig is 85 years old. He says he works out a lot, he eats right, uh, no bad habits, it's all good. But I admire anybody who's 85. <laughs> uh, for years, uh, he was the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, and then in 1992, when uh, Faye Vincent was uh, elected out as commissioner, uh, the other team owners decided there was really only one person who could take over the job of commissioner initially on an interim basis, and that was Commissioner Selig, who was the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers at the time. He did such a great job that in time they said, no, we don't want you interim, we want you to be full-time commissioner. And uh, he is second in tenure only to Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He held the job for almost 23 years uh, where so many important changes happened. And since then, uh, in stepping down in 2015, he is Commissioner Emeritus of Major League Baseball and has a very close working relationship with the current Commissioner, Rob Manfred. So please welcome Commissioner Bud Seeley. Now, Commissioner Seelig, our mutual good friend Dale Petrosky had a great first question for today's interview. He said, to understand Bud Seelig and what a serious baseball fan he is, you need to understand his mother and what she did to bring him into the game starting at age three. So tell that story. Well, that is uh, absolutely true. Um, my mother was a school teacher and, uh, and a very disciplined one, I may add. Um, I can remember, I guess maybe at that point I was four or five, she listened to games every day. She listened mainly to the Milwaukee Brewers, who were American Association team in those years, although she did listen to some Cub and White Sox games since we're close to Chicago. And she started taking me to games, and she was a real fan. My dad was a fan to the point where 
He and I went to a lot of games because, you know, he knew I wanted to do it. But my mother, um, I'll tell you one quick story. When I was on my 15th birthday, 1949, my mother took me to New York. I was in those days a Yankee fan, a little misguided, but I was a Yankee fan. <laughs> and I was really a Joe DiMaggio fan, so that's what. And um, um, went to Yankee Stadium. I'll never forget it. It was a thrill for me walking into Yankee Stadium, and there, there it was. And we're sitting there about 1 o'clock on my birthday, and they wheel a big birthday cake on the field. And I said to my mother, how could you? Now, you know, I'm 15, and the world revolves around me, I thought. Well, it turned out it was the great Casey Stengel, manager of the Yankees' birthday that day. <laughs> and, um, but we had a great time. I went to Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds. My mother was going to opera and art museums, but, but loved, really loved baseball. And so um, we went to Boston just to finish it up. And uh, we went to Fenway Park, obviously. The Yankees were there. Um, the miser was just was coming back, and we walked up to the ticket window, and my mother said, the two, and the window slammed down, typical Bostonian, bang. And um, he said, we're sold out. We have, we have no more tickets left. My mother said, you can't do this. I've just brought my boy here from Milwaukee. Well, he, you know, he, he looked at her like she was nuts, and he walked away, and that was it. Now it's 1979, 30 years later, and the Brewers are really good. We won 95 games that year, and uh, we're playing a big series in the Red Sox, and my mother had said to me, gee, I'd like to go, fine. So we go to Fenway, and somebody takes her down to her seat next to the dugout, and I came about 10 minutes later to check on her, make sure she's okay, and she looks at me, didn't crack a smile, nothing else, said, it's a little different than 30 years ago, isn't it? <laughs> One thing I neglected to say in the introduction is that last year, Commissioner Selig was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. You see his lapel pin, and it says it lists his many accomplishments as commissioner, but it also describes him as bridge builder and devoted fan. And when you read the book, you realize he's more than devoted. He is a very serious fan. So we all know how stressful baseball games can be, particularly when your team's in a pennant race. And so in the book, Commissioner Selig, you talk about how from time to time you have to invoke the seven-minute rule. So explain to our audience what that is, and maybe some of us might want to use I it. I will. The one thing I don't miss, although I, I do follow the Brewers very closely, so and we had an incident yesterday, which I'll tell you about in a minute, but um, years ago in the 70s, when you get involved and now you're living and dying with your team, you always seem to get down to the eighth and ninth innings. And I said to Lee McPhail and Chubb Feeney, who were then presidents of the American National League, two great old baseball guys, they had both been general managers, been around a long time. How do you guys, we were out for dinner one night, how do you guys handle these? And they both handled it the same way. Chubb said, I'll tell you what I do, I walk away, depends where I am, if I'm in the ballpark, I go down to my office, and you wait eight minutes. Or if your team is on the road, he said, I just walk away or turn it off, and you watch your clock. If you turn it back in eight minutes, 
you're in trouble because they're scoring runs. They didn't get them out quickly. Lee McPhail said he used to walk out of his house, watch, watch seven to eight minutes, pretty, pretty good. Sometimes today, the way they play the game, it could be nine or ten. And um, he said, my wife would flick the lights. That means we won. Nothing happened. I guess she was telling me to go somewhere else. We had lost the game. I do the same thing. So now yesterday I'm here signing books. Um, and the Brewers are beating Atlanta five to nothing in the seven. Well, feel pretty good. My guy who's here somewhere, he's in the back of the room. He says, well, it's five two in the eighth. Well, we have a great young relief pitcher in Josh Hader. I thought, well, it should be okay, I hope. But I'm nervous. I keep looking. I'm using the seven-minute rule. And he comes up. First two guys are on base. Oh, no. I keep signing books, but I'm looking at my watch. And um, two men on. First two guys got on. Lana's good. Lana's very good. One out, two outs. Comes back. We won. Five to two. Struck the last guy out. Five minutes later, you all right back there, Rich? He said, we won 5-4. What the hell are you talking about? You just told me we won 5-2. He struck the last guy out. Catcher, ball got away from the catcher. He threw wildly. The next guy got a hit, make it 5-4, and then he struck the last guy out, and they won 5-4. I said to him then, and I'm saying to him now, we had lost the game. God help you. <laughs> Well, many uh, interesting things happened to the game of baseball during the years you were commissioner, but one of them is just to see the change in the demographics, such that for well over a decade, maybe two decades, there's been a, an upsurge in the number of Latino ballplayers in the major leagues and a major decline in the number of African-American ballplayers in the major leagues. As one has gone up, the other has gone down. So, so what's your explanation for that demographic? Well, um Latino influence was felt early on, and it just got greater and greater. The Dominican Republic, for a little island, has produced players. I, and if you're going to ask me why, nobody has any reason why. I've asked every baseball guy for 30 years. Nobody has an answer. Um, it's uh, interesting. And today, you know, we're 42% diversified, but of that, 30% is Hispanic. Um, the African-American thing is a complex issue. Um, I've spent many years trying to understand it. Frank Robinson, a great player who just passed away, uh, worked for me for 22 years. And uh, he and I, along with Henry Aaron, and, and I, he and I have been friends since our Milwaukee days in 1958, have spent endless hours talking about it. We have all these academies going up now in inner cities. Compton, California, Houston, and on and on and on. Almost everywhere now. And I hope that's going to really change that. Um, because, you know, when you think back to the 50s, after the great Jackie Robinson came, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but you know, that was a huge moment in history. I think baseball's most powerful moment in history, most important moment in history, for a myriad of reasons. And then along came 
Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, think about it, I mean, incredible. We did all right into the 60s, and then everybody has a different theory, and nobody knows why, and I don't know why. We're down to about 8% now. Well, we're up a little bit. We were at 7, so what the hell, we're going in the right direction. But the drafts of the last two or three years have been really good on that score. So I want to hope and believe, and I know a lot of baseball people too, that we may never get back to the 18 to 19 percent that we were at, but hopefully we can get up to 12 and 14 percent. So. Now, during your years as commissioner, one of the biggest challenges you faced was the disparity issue between the small market towns like Milwaukee and the elite teams like the Yankees and the Mets and the Red Sox and the Dodgers. But in time, you succeeded in, in building a level of parities. And to give you all an idea of, of what a successful uh, outcome, in the last eight years, 26 of the 30 big league teams have played in the postseason. And in the 21st century, 12 different teams have won the World Series. So what, looking back, what was the most important thing you did to get out of disequilibrium and, and to bring things into balance between the small market and the big city teams? Well, changing the economics was, I, without a doubt, with all the things that went on, and I love the wild card, and a lot of clubs are going to love the wild card here in the next month or two, but um, all the things we did. But I knew back in 92, there's a, there's a line in the book that everybody convinced me to stay in, and it's... It's not facetious. It's on page nine. It's, it says, I inherited a blanking mess. F-bomb. Yeah. Now, you I know said, what, I'm going to like this. You know what, using F-bombs on page You know nine. what blanking means, but it's too early in the morning for me to get in there. Maybe this afternoon I would. But anyway, it was a mess. And what had happened, we had what I called an economic anachronism. Nothing had been changed since the 30s. And that was great baseball problem for, for a lot of reasons. And so I knew that the next at least decade, and that's about what it took, maybe a little longer, we're going to have to change things. And baseball being a social institution, it is that, social institution. Not perfect, because social institutions are not perfect. But one of the jobs of a commissioner is to provide a system that brings hope and faith. Those are my two key words, hope and faith. So that on March 28th, when the season opened this year, as many franchises as possible have at least, their fans have a realistic uh, idea that they can compete. And necessarily win because, you know, there are not many that win. And, we go up and down, but we've done really well. But what did it take? It took revenue sharing. It took a lot of things. We had to change the draft. We had to change our debt service rules. We had to, we, we had to do a lot of things. The union we deal with wasn't going to agree to a cap under any circumstances. Stan Kasten, who at that time was president of the Atlanta Braves and the Atlanta Hawks, used to say, we're not asking for half as much as the other sports already have. True. But it's the way it was. We lost the World Series in 94 because of that. And that 
that set off a, a really tough situation. And so what, you had, what I had to do is begin to convince all the parties, the constituents, as I call them, that it's in their best interest for the good of the game to come to an economic situation that provides competition. For instance, I used to say to George, George being George Steinbrenner, who I'm sure you'll talk about, a very difficult fellow, but, but I'm gonna say this, he, he and I were great friends. We never agreed on anything, and I mean anything. We, uh, we, we even had two football bets every year. I took, I took the Packers against Tampa, so that was a big winner. And um, I took the Badgers against his, the Ohio State Buckeyes, and uh, it was not quite as good. And um, it was okay, but not as good as it But anyway, I used to sit and tell him, if, 20, if your fans, who are plenty smart, know that 25 teams come in there, a bunch of stiffs, they can't win. You're just kidding yourself. Well, of course, the big market guy didn't see it that way. But in 1996, it took me that long, two more years, we passed our first revenue sharing. We didn't share a nickel up to that. Baseball had never $50 million. We were in Fort Lauderdale. And I was, I was excited beyond belief. It was our wedding anniversary, and I went out and I killed a bottle of champagne all by myself. <laughs> and um, then 2002 was the next. Anyway, slowly but surely. But we did a lot of things in the meantime. And one of the things we did, and I guess I'll tell the story now about in 2000, and this, I don't want to tell you we were this smart because we didn't know what the hell we were doing, but the internet was coming. And uh, we had uh, three or four of our people that came to me and said, we, we've got to do something about this. We didn't exactly know what, but we did. We set up a company, and I said to them, okay, I'd love it, it's great, but everybody's going to own the same share. The Kansas City Royals are going to own the same as the New York Yankees. The Pittsburgh Pirates are going to own the same as the Los Angeles Dodgers. And on and on and on. And um, we went to, uh, and, and, and that was, as it turned out, that was as big a revenue-sharing device as revenue-sharing. Didn't know it at the time. So the night before, we were in Phoenix in January of 2000. And there were two resolutions on the table. One, they gave me the authority, it gave me the authority to solve the economic problems. There was, there was no question, nobody could deny they existed. I had had a um, blue ribbon committee of George Will, Senator George Mitchell, Rick Levin, the president of Yale, and Paul Volcker, former Fed chairman. And they had come, in 1998, and they had come to me and said, problem is here, you got 25 or 26 teams that can't win. I said, I know, that's why you guys are here. <laughs> and um, so the first resolution, oh, the night before, my wife and I are having dinner with George Steinbrenner. And we, uh, when I say to you, we all really were very good friends. We really were. And he was railing and ranting, as he always did, about something. And, 
and we finally got off. And I said to my wife going over there that night, for God's sakes, don't bring up BAM tomorrow. BAM is a baseball advanced media. Which is the internet, 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 internet. internet company. So we're going to dinner, and uh, he's grumbling to me a little bit. Ah, these guys got my hands in my pocket. That was the big market theory about all the other teams. There were five against the other 25. And that goes on for a little while, and we talk about other things, and he's talking about he loved horses, and we're going through that. And then all of a sudden, my wife says, how are you going to vote on BAM tomorrow, Joe? <laughs> and that set him off. You know, he was always smart. He never mentioned Milwaukee. Ah, those Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Detroit, everybody. A ah, bunch of, ah, da, 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 this is communism. This is, why don't you bring, one day, one time he said to me, why don't you bring Trotsky over here to be the commissioner? <laughs> and um, so I, he got all done, and now we're, that was it. And going home, my wife said, how will he vote tomorrow? I said, after you just screwed it up, well, why are you asking me? And uh, so the next day, we passed a resolution in the morning, which is really meaningful. The only, it never existed before, it doesn't exist anymore now. 30 to nothing. Now comes ma'am. And we talk about it a little bit and talk about what we hope it'll be. And um, now our guy starts taking roll. First 14, that's the other thing, George said, you got all those guys, if you told them all to jump in Lake Michigan, they do that, blah, 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 blah. And uh, now New York Yankees. Now it turns out, this turned out to be the biggest in our history, a revenue sharing thing. Dead silence. What seemed like an hour was only about 28 seconds or so. New York Yankees. Now he's mumbling in the back. I used to call him mumbles, because when he was mad, he was always mumbling to him. You could hear him all over. He was, ah, these guys leeches their hands in my pocket, and uh, you know. And then, ironically, I don't know why, you hear it, but yes. And there was a lot of applause, and it, I sort of, I insisted on 30 to nothing votes, especially on all issues, but the economic issues, because uh, once we passed them, owners could uh, second-guess, or they were very sophisticated second-guessers. And, um, and um, once they voted for it, then pretty hard for them to, to do that. And it turned out, I mean, George did the right thing in the end for the good of the game. And it turned out to be a multi, 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 many, many times, billion-dollar enterprise so good that we sold a little piece of it, BAM Tech, little company, not BAM. Bob Iger at Disney bought them because of streaming about three years ago for about $4 billion. And BAM is worth many, many, many times that. So what George did that day was, um, and everybody profited from it. And that's the whole point. Whole point, you know, sports, everybody says their business is a little different, but in sports, the league is what, the sport itself is what is most important. And we've, we've talked about that. I, I, I'll tell that now just because I was lucky. When I came in the game in 1970, I was just, I was a kid. And a man took, really took me under his wing, John Fetzer, the owner of the Detroit Tigers, older man, television executive. 
television visionary. And uh, I would ride to meetings. I'd go to Detroit, meet him in Detroit. It was, pain, it was a pain in the neck and go on to New York. Most of our meetings were in New York. And we discussed every meeting, discussed everybody. And he taught me a lot. But one day in 1971, it's the day he asked me to quit calling him Mr. Fetzer and call him John. He had voted for something that was clearly not in his best interest. He had a, still had a wonderful team. They had been world champions. He had a lot of great players, Al Kaline and Bill Freehand. And, and what he voted was, was, was harmful to him. So we got in the cab, and I couldn't wait. And I said, how could you do that? And he said, buddy, I want to tell you something I don't ever want you to forget, and I never have. And of course, everybody who's ever been in baseball has heard John Fet about John Fetzer over and over, almost at every meeting. He said, you always do what's in the best interest of baseball, not in the best interest, as he said, of the Detroit Baseball Club. He never called them the Tigers or anybody. And in your case, you've got to learn and never forget, as painful as it might be, to do what's best for baseball, not in the best interest of the Milwaukee Baseball Club. Well, he was right. And the more I was in the business, years and years and years, um, his greatness came through over and over again. And the problem is some owners, I guess in all sport, never learn that lesson. And it's harmful. But in, our, in my 22 or 23 years, I can complain, you know, you can, you hear a lot and kid a lot about owners, and maybe because I was one of them, I don't know why everybody has a different theory. They were great with me. They were really, really good. Oh, yeah, you know, I had my problems. So don't, I don't want to tell you that. But this book is, is aptly named because in the end, I always believed that what we did was in the best interest of the game. Well, one of the main things you did during your tenure was to address the serious steroid drug problem. And you got a lot of criticism, uh, and still do, uh, for not having moved quick enough or firm enough in dealing with it. And it was quite a process and a lot of people involved in ultimately getting the situation turned around. But one of my favorite stories in the book came when you were at the 2005 Baseball Hall of Fame induction dinner with our friend Dale Petrosky, who was president of the Baseball Hall of Fame at the time. Tell the story of what happened at that dinner and why it was so impactful. Yeah, uh, just to, to, one of the reasons I really wrote the book is there were so many historical myths about the steroid thing. In 1998, just to give them a brief background to get to that very important story, um, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were in a big home run Derby, I guess I'll call for lack of a better term. And um, Steve Wilstein, who was an AP writer for the Pittsburgh, uh, in Pittsburgh, discovered a bottle of Andro in McGuire's locker. And uh, next day I went in the pharmacy, and I was going to the pharmacy and said, it's over there, I know why you're here. Well, he was right, but I didn't want to admit it. And um, the best we could get the union to do was to go to Harvard to study Andrew. Now, the thing that uh, 
you've heard a lot now in the last 18 hours or so. This is a subject of collective bargaining. This is not something that commissioner can do unilaterally. Commissioners are not above the law, even though some people accuse us of that. And the union publicly fought it. I mean, I'm not telling anything that those who followed baseball with Gene Orza and Don Fear was head of the union. And it was brutal. Remember, we had gone through the cocaine era of the 80s. Very serious problem. Pittsburgh drug trial, 29 players convicted, four went to jail. No drug testing. There was a relief pitcher, Steve Howie, pitched everywhere. He may have pitched here, I don't know. Did he? He was convicted seven times and got out every time. The union fought aggressively. We didn't have a drug testing program. Sad to say that two years after his career ended, he died of an overdose. So I'm not sure what favor the union thought they were doing him. But we had no program. So when people say you were slow to react, <laughs> we've reacted as aggressively as I can, as I could possibly do. Now, in 2000, in the minor leagues where I could act unilaterally, I banned steroids. And um, we had had a lot of hearings, very uncomfortable, and they were painful. And some people in Washington didn't seem to understand it was the union. It was baseball, and we did this, and oof, it was tough. We had some really tough times. In fact, I know Don Hooten is from here, as I said yesterday, but I went to one hearing which turned into full-blown disaster because of the union, but, and there were two people there whose sons, Don Hooten and Bob Garibaldi, both of whose sons had died of, of steroid use. They were high school baseball pitchers trying to build themselves up. And you'll often hear me say that baseball is a social institution. It is a social institution with enormous responsibilities. And uh, this was painful. And we were getting pounded. And um, I then appeared at, first of all, the house. And George Mitchell called me before that one and said, this is going to be a bad day for you tomorrow. Why do you say that? He said, well, there'll be more cameras than they've had during a year, and when there are cameras there, look out, they're going to be acting, and boy, were they bad. But we kept trying to, and we're improving the program, slowly but surely. And um, then Senator McCain had a couple of hearings. The first one was bad. He and Don Fear were pretty friendly because they had been in the United States Olympic Committee. But slowly but surely, they began to understand it was the union, not us. And I went to Cooperstown, they all remember this, and, and you have a dinner on a Sunday night with the players, the com just the commissioner and the players. And oftentimes it's just very social and done, but this is a time where the players, especially the older players, wanted to talk about steroids and how embarrassed they were and how terrible this was. And they were really outspoken. And um, flying home to Milwaukee that night, I said to myself, when McCain calls the next time, I got to bring some of these guys there. They need to hear this. 
About 11.30 Monday morning, I'm sitting, minding my own business, sort of, and I uh, never did that too well. Um, and my assistant says, Senator McCain's on the phone himself. Oh. Bill got on, made small. By that time, he said, look, I know the problem, and we talked about it. And I said, Senator, I'm giving my life to this thing. But I have a favor to ask. What's the favor? Tell him about Cooperstown, what went through. And I said, I'd like to bring these players to the, he said, we're going to have a hearing in two weeks, three weeks. I'd like to bring six players, one from each decade. And, and I want you to listen. And he said, may I ask who you have in mind? Well, I started with my friend Henry Aaron. I said, I'd like to bring, he said, done. As soon as he heard Henry Aaron, that's, I don't need to hear anymore. So we, I brought Robin Roberts, who was a great pitcher years ago, and Ryan Sandberg of the Cubs, Lou Brock of the Cardinals, Phil Negro of the Braves. It was great, and Henry Aaron. Night before we had a dinner, and I ate a lot as usual, and I get up and said, you guys want to talk about this at all? No, no. They had all written out what they were going to say. They had nothing more to say. And uh, they came the next day, and they did just beautifully. Now, Rob Manford was sitting behind me. Don Fear was sitting here with me. And Gene Orza, who was a very tough guy from the union, was sitting behind. And he was having a fit during the whole thing. And uh, I heard Rob talking that one time. Gene, just shut up, please. Just shut up. <laughs> and um, he did for a couple of minutes. And that really turned things around. I did retain Senator Mitchell the next year to do a study because we had nothing to hide. And I felt that way. I really felt I, we are a social institution. Some people were critical. They were very critical. The union would, never did talk to them, never, not once, not one person. Um, my people were against it only because they just didn't like going outside. But. I remember we had, I had about 15 on a call one day, I missed before, and I said, you know, guys, I think this is the right thing to do. I want to shed some light on it, and I said, we won't take a vote, but is there anybody for this along with me? There was not one person. I said, well, congratulations. You, went, you have 15, I have one, and I just won. And um, we hired him, and it turned out to be the right thing to do because Jose Canseco was making a lot of comments, and it was... So that's the whole steroid question. That's why when I look, and today, what do we have today? The toughest testing program in American sports by far, by far. Water, the World Anti-Doping Association would tell you we probably have the toughest testing program in America. So um, it had a, a good ending. Now, it's not perfect because every time somebody gets caught, we've had a few this year, Ah, program isn't working. If nobody's getting caught, you don't have a program. It's as simple as that. And you're just kidding yourself. So um, we hired Dr. Gary Green from UCLA, who still runs the program, who's either the leading expert or one of them on steroids. And he, I talked to him a lot. I talked to the professional athletic trainers a lot, whom I love, and all the team doctors. And they, so, from a sport that didn't have anything to a sport that now have a tough testing program, um, 
There's a guy wrote an article the other day about all the home runs and said, well, a testing. And, um, but I noticed a lot of people answered. They had all kinds of reasons why, but that wasn't one of them. And I can assure you that isn't one of them. Mm -hmm. Another uh, major achievement of your time as commissioner was stopping the work stoppages that were happening every three or four years for a couple of decades anyway. The last one was the 94, which led to the cancellation of the World Series. And so there was this total impasse, and you were very frustrated. And all of a sudden, one day, you got a call from President Bill Clinton. So talk about that call and what came after it in terms of the intervention into the process? Well, this is, um, it was a very painful period. Broke my heart. No World Series. I can remember the night we announced it. I went home and in my mind I replayed every World Series from 1944 on. And, uh, and this was bad. October 14th of that year, I get a call. Come to the White House. The president wants to see you. Okay. Well, I found out from David Glass, who owned the Kansas City Royals, or just bought them, who was chairman of Walmart. And Hillary Clinton was still on the Walmart board, so I remember calling David and said, what's this about? And he says, well, they want to hire a mediator, Bill Usry really the most prominent labor media in American history. I checked him out. Uh, my wife had a cousin who was a labor lawyer, and um, everybody really liked us. So I went there. The clubs didn't want to do it, but they were great. They really were. didn't want to do it. George called me. I'll never forget. I just thought about the call last night after last me. And he says, you'll do what you want to do, and I'll back you, but I don't like it. <laughs> okay. And he says, I've never, the mediation is a joke, and this and that, and so on and so forth, and, and a terrible thing, and you've got to be nuts if you do it, but I'll back you. Thanks for the great uh, backing, George. So I go to see the president. He says, it's terrible about the World Series, and... He said, I, I want to go to mediation. I said, I know. I've talked to David Glass. Yes, he said, I, he says, I know Hillary talked to. I said, well, our clubs don't want to do it. But if you give me your word that you'll back usury, I'll do it. And I'll give you my word. Yeah, you have my word. Now we spend the next four months arguing, fighting. Union is worse, but we're with Usry, whom I like personally, but he was difficult. I had a labor committee, 12 people on it, and uh, they fought and they scrapped. And they, in early February, I get a call. Actually, my daughter, who was on the labor committee, called and said, uh, Everybody here thinks he, he better get here because he probably is going to come down with something. I'll be there tonight. So next morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, phone rings. It's, Hi, bud. Bill. Hi, Bill. You want to come down and have breakfast? Yeah, I'll be there. 
Well, he gives me his plan. And uh, remember, we're, this is 1994, 95 now. This is, we have no system. We don't have anything. And um, I didn't like it, but I didn't dislike it. It was really pretty good and fair. And I finally said, well, I gave the president my word, and I gave you my word, and that was it. So he shook hands. He said, I'll be back to you. I'm going to see the union. So I have my committee there, and the day starts going, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Uh-oh. By noon, we're calling every senator we know. and Five o'clock, we get a call. By this time, we know there's trouble. Be at the White House at 7. Well, that's trouble. But we're at the White House at 7. There's Don Fair, Gene Orza with a bunch of players, a whole raft of players. We're there. Ussery looks like he's lost his last friend. I'll tell you about that in a second. And um, we start the meeting, and the president makes appropriate remarks. I don't know who they were appropriate for, but he said they were appropriate. And, um, and he sort of leaves, and Al Gore takes over. And tough. Union won't accept us. Not right. And I'm looking around, and I'm looking at, I got some of my people there who didn't want to do this in the first place. And then they adjourned for a while. And I'm walking the halls in shock. Can't figure out what to do. More importantly, I can't figure out what in the hell we're going to do next. There's Bill Ussery. He had an economist by the name of Herb Fishgold who was really smart and really good. And I walked by him, and Bill said, I'm sorry. What happened, I hadn't told us before, he went over to the union, gave him the plan. Remember, they had agreed to this, too. Gene Orza had an appropriate response for himself. He called him a senile bastard. And um, so he looks at me. I'll never forget it. And I am a history buff, and this is a... Harry S. Truman never did this to me. Dwight David Eisenhower never did this to me. John F. Kennedy never did this to me. Lyndon Baines Johnson never did this. And he went gone away up, and the only note of some slight levity, although he didn't laugh, he said, even that son of a bitch Richard Nixon didn't do this to me. And he was distraught. And I knew then we were in trouble. Just about that time, Leon Panetta, who was chief of staff, who was really quite good, I must say, and he was very close to my friend Senator Mitchell, so I knew he had been talking to him, and he told me that. But he said, the president wants to see you. So, of course, go back, pleasant, and he said, look, I feel badly, but, you know, the union won't do it, and we can't go against the union, and and after about 10 minutes into this dialogue, I said to him, uh, we gave each other our word. I said, I, he said, well, we just can't do it. Just at that 
precise moment the door opened, and Leon Panetta, George Stephanopoulos, Robert Reich, who was the labor secretary, he and I didn't get along well at all, by the way, and, um, and the vice president. Bill Clinton does a smart thing, he disappears. And um, now Al Gore starts. And he said, you know the trouble with all these little guys? And I'm trying to figure out, who the hell is he talking about? Well, he was talking about Pittsburgh, Milwaukee. Oh, he had, he, he had 15 or 18 of them, which is the union's position. And he goes on and on. I'm sitting there and still in shock, but now getting mad. And finally, I said to him, uh, I was by myself, there were none of our, no other baseball people there. You're telling me, I interrupted him, got up. We made a deal here, gave each other our word that you'd accept this. Yeah, but I don't care about these little guys. And then George, uh, Leon Panetta told George Mitchell it may have been the greatest temper tantrum he'd ever seen. I'm not proud of it. My language was worse than terrible. But, and I finally said to him, there are a thousand people out there, media members, covering this. This is huge. You know, we had been on strike and it was, a, I said, I ought to go and tell them that you blankety people have just blanketed us. And I may do that, but I've had enough of you. I had enough of you to last a lifetime. With that, they all disappeared like uh, they were shot out of a howitzer. Man, you never saw people scramble so fast in your life. And that's the story. We, unfortunately, we went back, down for another four or five months, tried to do some things, uh, lost at the NLRB, and I knew then that the next, from that point on, we were going to have to do something different. These strikes, these lockouts from 1970 on had killed us. I don't think any of us, and I say that in the book over and over, understand how significant they were, how destructive they were. I'll tell you why. Because you're a fan, a lot of fans here. Players go on strike. If they hate the players and never come back to see them, that doesn't do you much good. And hating the owners, hating the commissioner, that's okay. Everybody hated the commissioner back, in the, especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So it was, it was, a, it was a very painful period. Uh, and then slowly but surely we began, 98, 99, 2000. And the first labor negotiation in history was our O2 negotiation that we settled at seven in the morning. Seven in the morning. The last item was steroids. And I didn't like it because I thought it was weak, but Rob Manfred said it's better than anything we've had. 5% test positive, we can start testing. It worked. More than five, quite a bit more than five tested positive. And uh, the economic issues were there. And in 06 and in 11, 
We made deals three months, four months before we even had to. Stunned everybody. Tightened up economics and tightened up the drug thing. But it came slowly and with a lot of pain. For my last question, you mentioned a couple of times about baseball's uh, importance to American society, that there's a community trust and a social responsibility. And there's a real vivid part in your book. And of course, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 47. 1957, the Milwaukee Braves uh, surprised everybody and won the National League pennant. And they were obviously led by Henry Aaron. And on the front page of the New York Times in that September 1957, there was a photo of Henry Aaron being fully embraced by his teammates as they won the pennant, and also a photo, of the famous photo, of the integration of the Little Rock schools. And so knowing how baseball had opened the door with Jackie Robinson, seeing that kind of thing, talk about how those situations impacted your belief in baseballs having this social responsibility. Well, I was a kid in 1957, out of college, out of service. And um, I'll never forget that night. Henry and I talk about it often. It was, my father had talked me into taking an accounting course. And here I had lived and died with the Braves all year. And I, I hope I'm not offending anybody. I hated the course and I hated accounting. <laughs> And it's consi and consistent for to this day, but that's a whole other story. So I'm driving down the freeway, and I, you know, I told you my mother was a teacher. I was one of those nerds. I never missed a class. I went to the library every night. I'm not going to this idiotic class. I drove off the freeway. The Braves are going to play the famed St. Louis Cardinals with Stan Musial and two great teams. I mean, really great teams. And um, Parked nine miles away, sat in an obstructed view seat. It was, and they were right, they were honest, and post right in front of me, so this is, I spent all night long. And anyway, to make a long story short, great ball game. Braves had the bases loaded in the ninth inning. My friend Frank Torrey, Joe's older brother, was up, and he hit in a double play, and to the day he died, I never let him forget that either. But in the 11th inning, Henry Aaron hit a home run off of Billy Muffet, the great Cardinal relief pitcher. And uh, the, the excitement, the drama, everything about it was just people crying. And you, everybody's been through that in one time or another in the sport. And the next day in the New York Times, Juxtaposed. Here's Aaron being carried off the field by his mainly white teammates. Mainly. And Orville Faubus spraying African-American kids who were merely trying to go to school. Right next to one. The picture made uh, an indelible impression on me. So I never forgot that. I never forgot that. And Henry's heard this story a million times, but it is true. And it, it, again, we get into the social institution theory, but baseball has a role to play. I would call it an obligation, but I don't look at it as an obligation. I look at it as a privilege, and I always did. 
So in 1997, um, it was the 50th anniversary of the Jackie Robinson story, and, and you know, I teach a college course, Baseball in American Society, 1945 to the present, and I start with Jackie Robinson. And uh, we were saying, how, how to honor it? Well, I talked to Rachel Robinson, his widow, who's one of the great human beings I've ever met, I, an amazing woman who, by the way, probably got him through all the heartache he went through. Daughter Sharon worked for me for 20-some years, 24 years, so. And uh, we decided then, uh, Bill Clinton was there. We never talked about what happened, by the way. I saw him many times, but, uh, and we retired his number into perpetuity. And um, I just, the only follow-up in the story was a great night and nobody will ever again wear 42. Mariano Rivero earned, we, she gave him permission to finish that. But in 06, I get a call one night, I'm coming in, and what happened is the Dodgers wore 42 on April 15th. All the Dodgers. All the Dodgers, whole team. And I get a call and uh, debating whether to answer it. I say, it's Sunday night, I'm just walking the house and I figure somebody blew a game, it's the umpire's fault and we have an owner calling and tell me our umpires stink. That, that happened a lot. And um, they never called when an umpire blew and gave them a game, that you never heard then. Um, it was Ken Griffey Jr. Great player, better person too. And he said, you know, the younger guys don't remember Jack. We talked for quite a while, and he said, the reason I'm calling finally, can't, why can't all of us wear 42? Well, I'm very cautious, and I always want to think, I says, Griff, let me think about it overnight, I'll call you in the morning. Oh, he said, really? And then I knew I was going to do it. I did, I called him at 8 o'clock the next, 8.30 the next morning. Great idea, your idea, everybody, and now, today, every, player wears 42. And so um, you, you want people to understand, especially your players and people in the game, why things happen, how they happen, and what the history of happening. So that's the, that's the story of how 42 got retired. Well, we want to respect your schedules. It's almost 9 o'clock. I reviewed Bud's book and I said he could have chosen another title the one he chose is obviously great, but he also could have entitled it Saving Baseball. Because for him to turn around the economics and solve the drug problem and do all and prevent the work stoppages, in my opinion, truly saved the game. And so what a storyteller he is. And so you're all going to get your own complimentary copy of the book. But now that you hear how great he is, I hope you'll want to buy additional copies, which he'll sign, but let's give a great round of applause for Bud Seeds. Bud Selig is as good a storyteller as there is. We did four programs together in less than 24 hours during his trip to Dallas-Fort Worth this week. I believe that during the 22 and a half years he led baseball, he truly saved the game by bringing economic parity to the teams, achieving a sustained term of avoiding work stoppages and winning the war on performance-enhancing drugs. You can find Commissioner Selig's new book on Amazon and wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.